your guest with us, my name is Raymond. I serve here as one of the pastors of Christ Church. It's a privilege to have you with us this morning. We're actually uh, beginning a series of sermons just at the beginning of the, the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. And if you did not come with a Bible, you are in a great place this morning. We have Bibles underneath the seat in front of you. You should be able to find John's Gospel on page 886. If you're not very familiar with the Bible, large numbers or chapter numbers... The small numbers are verse numbers, and I'm going to begin reading in just a few moments in John chapter 1, verse 19. In the quartet of gospel writers, John gets the final storytelling word. John writes Jesus' story in quite a different way than his other companions in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke who all actually follow the same basic outline. If you go back and you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one of the things that you'll see is that Jesus does not enter into Jerusalem until the end of his ministry in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in John's gospel, we see Jesus going in and out of Jerusalem, which is actually very common and very normal. It's what we should have expected. Jesus being a good Jew, following the law, fulfilling all things for God's people, going in and out of Jerusalem throughout the entirety of his life. John's approach gives us the same story, but he he shifts the perspective. And he changes the tone to engage us a little differently. In his article, The Gospel According to St. Matthew, John Updike observes that if we view Matthew, Mark, and Luke as progressive sedimentary, then John is like metamorphic rock in which these strata have been violently annealed into something quite different. Basically, that's a fancy way of saying John wants to draw our attention to Jesus Christ. One of the 12 disciples, John tells us stories. And his stories, as we saw, represent mature reflections. He's not simply filling up chapters because he has a quota to meet. About five decades after Jesus' death on the cross, John is reflecting on the significance of that life for all of us. And he's chosen them with great care that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So as we did last time, I just want to remind us, as we study John's Gospel, keep asking yourself, how does this passage fulfill John's purpose? If you're a Christian here today, as you listen to the sermon, how does this passage strengthen your faith that you might know more clearly that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, we are so glad that you've come. And we're asking you to listen carefully and ask yourself even now, what does this text reveal to you that you might understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name? Let's begin reading in chapter 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, 
Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus said to Nathanael, coming toward him, and said to him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. 
but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. It is truth. And as we turn our attention to it now, we ask that you would help us to focus our attention on it. Father, we ask for those who are believers here today that your word would ring true with them afresh, that your word would resonate with them in Christ, and that it would drive them into deeper repentance and deeper faith. And Father, we pray for those who are here who are not Christians, that today you would do the good, merciful work of redeeming grace that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would cause them to be born again, that you would remove the heart of stone. Father, that they might trust in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us, as Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Who are you? Who are you is the question of the day for many people. Self-discovery is thought to be a necessary component of what it means to live in our society so that we might have self-esteem, so that we might see self-actualization come to fruition. So many people spend the majority of their life seeking to discover who they are as they strive to find their place in the world, in education and in sports, in relationships and where they live, by what they wear and where they go. And often, even Christians struggle to understand their place in God's plan, but not John the Baptist. The religious establishment wondered who he thought himself to be, but the man of God knew who he was, and he knew who he believed the Lamb of God to be, the servant who will die for sin and the son who will rule forever. Two simple points will guide our time together today. The man of God the Lamb of God. Notice first the man of God. Look again with me in verse 19 of the passage. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. The Jewish people believed that God had not spoken to them prophetically since the conclusion of Malachi's ministry. But John the Baptist appears on the scene and appears to them to be a prophet. So verse 19, the Jewish leaders, the Jews, send a delegation of people, Levites, priests, and Pharisees, to ask the Baptist, verse 19, who are you? The impact of John's ministry is seen when the delegation comes to question him concerning their identity. They've observed who he is. They've taken notice of what he's done. They've heard some of his message. And they wonder, can he be someone important for them? They know that he's someone special, even though he has spoken against them. If you have your Bible open, flip with me to Matthew chapter 3. And if you have your Bible open, you're going to need it open throughout the duration of the sermon because we're going to need to move around a few different times. Matthew's gospel, we see John's ministry fleshed out a little bit more 
speaking to the people who have come to him at this moment. Chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he of who it was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance." But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with the unquenchable fire. John has come on the scene like a lightning rod preaching against the very people who are standing before him now, asking who he is. But he says, verse 20 of John chapter 1, I am not the Christ. Messianic hope took all forms of expectation in the first century. Jews anticipated someone to come, and they desperately wanted somebody to come like David who would come and throw off the yoke of Roman domination. We see this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So you can imagine the disappointment of the delegation. When they've come to John and they recognize that he is someone special. And they recognize that not everyone has the audacity to speak to them this way. When he emphatically replies, I am not the Christ. I am not the one that you are looking for. But perhaps he's still somebody that they're looking for. So they respond to his denial by asking another time. Verse 21. What then? Are you Elijah? Jews have been looking for something. They've been looking for a great end time figure like Elijah to precede the coming of the Messiah. Since they knew according to 2 Kings chapter 2 verse 11 that Elijah had not died. He had been taken up. And as a result, here they are in the first century dominated by Romans. Here they are in the first century, their temple destroyed. Here they are in the first century without all of the glory that the people of Israel had of old. And as a result, they're longing for someone to come, Elijah to come, and to announce the end of all things. We read about it earlier in the service. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 and chapter 4 verses 5 through 6. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. But once again, John has a ministry of disappointment. He comes and he answers them. I am not who you are looking for. 
verse 21. I am not Elijah. Now you can imagine at this point they're desperate. They've come to this man and they're clearly giving him great status. So they ask again desperately in verse 21. Are you the prophet? Perhaps he was at least the one that Moses was pointing forward to. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Familiar and important verses for us. Moses, writing as the people are sitting on the edge of the promised land, when God is giving them the law again, the Deuteronomos, the second giving of the law, speaks to them about one who would come after him as Moses himself stares death in the face and looks forward to the end of his ministry. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. To which by now you can imagine that the Jews should just expect that John the Baptist is once again going to disappoint. Whoever John the Apostle was writing about in the first 18 verses, John the Baptist is not in the following verses. So he says in verse 21, No, I am not the prophet. In our age of self-promotion... It is both convicting and refreshing to find a man like John the Baptist in the biblical narrative. He does not seek titles for himself. He does not seek honor for himself. He does not seek to promote himself. Just think for a moment as we think of our age in particular, of all of the apps that we all get swallowed up by. Listen to just a few of their names. Facebook. YouTube. Self-promotion is built into our very DNA and everything in our culture puts it front and center and it does not stop there. It's at the very fabric of our society. You climb the corporate ladder by putting yourself first and foremost above other people and promoting yourself. To get promoted, you have to promote yourself. And you climb the ministry ladder by promoting yourself, by making sure that everyone knows that you're accomplishing something significant, that you're not a dud. All of that to say, the pressures that we experience because of self-promotion are everywhere and they create a strange tension for us. And a big truth of this passage, when we come onto the biblical scene and meet John the Baptist, is that he knew that it was God's will for him to take a back seat and for someone else to take center stage. Not John, not you, not me. John had a beautiful role in the biblical narrative in preparing people's hearts for Jesus' arrival. But he seems to understand better than anyone else in the biblical narrative that he himself, though important, was never the goal. That he was the man of God, a servant of Christ. A servant of Christ was the aim of his life and ministry. And the will of God was for Jesus to have supremacy. Friends, I wonder if you and I, as servants of Christ could say the same as John, that we recognize that we are not the Christ, that we recognize that we are not the people that people are looking for, that we're not the one 
that needs to accomplish their salvation or their deliverance or their happiness. Some of us take such great burden on ourselves, and John knows. He has a preparatory, anticipatory ministry, but it was never about John or his significance or being center stage. He was to push another forward. Christian in the room, are you pushing another forward? Or are you simply just pushing yourself across the line so that everyone would take notice? We have to take careful, deliberate steps to live like John the Baptist, to take a step back so that Christ might be exalted. And this is not the last time in John's gospel where we will hear the refrain that will come in chapter 3. He must increase and I must decrease. I am not the Christ. I am not Elijah. I am not the prophet. I am not the Savior. I am not the one who can fix your problems. I am not the one that you are looking for. But there is one that you are looking for. Friends, one of the reasons that many believers in this room are so disappointed is that you are working really hard to be the one that somebody is looking for. And John's ministry is an example to us that you are not the one anybody should be looking for. You should be introducing them to and pointing them to the Christ. He knew he wasn't the answer. And his unwillingness to cooperate frustrates the very people who have come to inquire of him. So they ask, verse 22, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? If he was not the one that they were looking for, who is this guy? The man of God knew who he was. He said, verse 23, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. By referring to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, it is clear that John saw himself and his ministry as one that was to prepare Prepare for the Messiah. His ministry was simply to anticipate another ministry. His baptism was to anticipate another baptism. All of his work was to point to someone else, of one who would bring Israel out of exile, of one who would bring Israel out of spiritual exile, of one who would bring Israel back to God. Because in context, if we go back and we read Isaiah chapter 40, we'll see that chapter 40 verse 3 refers figuratively to the preparing of roads to allow Israel to return home. She's in exile because of her sin. She's dominated because of her sin. The people of Israel are still dominated by the Romans because of their sin. There's no real uh, return home for them because the Romans are there. And John says, like then, so now, I am to point to one who is coming who would bring relief. Friends, one of the most useful things that you could do is to go home this week and start reading in Isaiah. And if you've not read Isaiah much, just start in chapter 40, chapter 40, and read all the way through 66. Or you can come to the academy. Did we finish this week, Isaac? All right, well, go to Isaac and get his notes for all of Isaiah from this week in the academy. Well, go and read Isaiah and look in chapters 40 through 66. And see, all of the promises are fulfilled in the one who is being pointed to, the servant, that the period of exile would end. There would be a time of rescue for God's people when God would lead them home through this servant. God the rescuer would come and he would bring triumph through a conqueror who would astonishingly be a suffering servant. And when he comes, his glory will be revealed and he will establish a new and greater Jerusalem at the center of the new heavens and the new earth. And there will be a glorious and bright future for all of God's people. And this glorious future is promised to God's people by Isaiah And it is realized in John's time, and it is proclaimed to you now. 
So when the John, John the Baptist comes and he announces that he is the voice, he's not simply being modest. When he says, I'm not the Christ, he's not merely being humble. John the Baptist is pointing them to one who can do for them what they could never do for themselves. He is heralding the fulfillment of all of God's promises, and he is announcing the rescuer of the rescue plan has arrived. The servant who will die for sin. The son who will rule forever. The man of God knew that he was merely a forerunner. Friends, one of the things that we do in our age is we stake a lot of hope on mere men, men and women. John the Baptist says, do not hope in me. Don't lay your stake in my life and in my ministry. Look to the one who has come. A herald who preached a message of repentance, turning away from sin, and baptism, the very same thing these Pharisees now put him on the spot about and probe further into. Look in verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John was calling the Jewish people to become God's people by summoning them to repentance. He's calling them away from their wicked ways. He's calling them to belief. He's calling them to orthodoxy. He's calling them to trust. He's calling them to turn away from sin, sin that led them to exile, sin that has kept them in Roman domination, sin that has kept them in a dark spot. And he is telling them to demonstrate their repentance through a once-for-all baptismal act by identifying with God's people. Friends, this is what baptism is. It's not a special day for you. It's announcing whose we are. And John is telling them, be the Messiah's. Turn from sin and declare it to the world by being baptized. But they wanted to know, by what authority do you have to tell me what to do if you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet? So John says in verse 26, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John confesses that his water baptism is only one that is pointing forward just like his message. Because there is one among them that they do not know. Friends, the question that is lying underneath this for them and for us is, do you know the one that John is pointing to? He, John, is pointing to him, the most important one in the narrative. So important that John is not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. John's humility at this point is astonishing. The religious leaders think that he's an end-time prophet. The crowds that we saw in Matthew chapter 3 are flocking to him out in the wilderness. People are coming and are responding to the message and being baptized, but he does not consider himself to be worthy. He doesn't consider himself worthy to loosen the strap of the Messiah's sandal. He is lower than a slave or a servant. He knows that he is pointing to the servant, the one who will die for sin. He is pointing to the son, the one who will rule forever. All of these events... And John's ministry take place east of the Jordan River as John was leading people out of the land of Israel and reconstituting them as the people of God coming in as those who would identify with him. Verse 28, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The man of God, notice second, the lamb of God. Look again in verse 29. 
The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, as we were reading earlier, careful readers notice that there is a running sequence of days in John chapter 1, beginning in John chapter 1, verse 19, that climaxes ultimately in this miraculous transformation of water into wine in John chapter 2, verse 9. Beginning the day that this delegation was sent to interrogate John the Baptist in chapter 1, verse 19, we observe John's testimony regarding Jesus. Then, on the second day, John announces Jesus to be the Lamb of God. Look at verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. Then, on the third day, John refers two disciples to Jesus Christ. Look in John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And if you look at the footnote that many of you have in your Bible at this point, you'll see that John chapter 1, verse 39 tells us that it was already 4 p.m. on the third day, and those two disciples spent the rest of their day with Jesus. So it's on the fourth day that Andrew introduces Simon Peter to Jesus in John chapter 1, verses 40 and 42. Then on the fifth day, Philip and Nathanael follow Jesus where he is where he decided, verse 43, to go to Galilee. The reference to the third day in John chapter 2, verse 1, means two days later. That is, two days after the fifth day, and the sixth day is not mentioned in John chapter 1. Now, all of that sounds a bit confusing, but it's all important for John as he points us to Jesus Christ. As John steps on the scene and says, I'm not the Christ, the apostle begins with this very detailed account of the first week of the Messiah's ministry. And he culminates all of that activity in the Messiah turning water into wine. Old things are becoming new things. The old covenant is passing away, and the promises of the new covenant have arrived. Old laws will not bind you. There is a new law, the law of Christ. The things that you look to for salvation are passing away. And now there is one who has come, who is the Lamb of God, slain for us. On the seventh day of this, of this first week of ministry, John draws all of our attention to this Jesus who is doing something new. Why does the apostle go to such extravagant lengths to recount this? Because each day of Jesus' life bore great significance There were no wasted days in Jesus' life. Every day he's on mission and doing ministry. And John is counting these from the beginning. And because at the end of that first week, the man of God's witness proclaims Jesus, the Lamb of God, to be the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit, and he is the Son of God. The apostle wanted to draw our attention to the fulfillment of all of this expectation in the person of Christ, in the ministry of the Lamb, because Jesus is the Lamb who would solve the biggest problem that we have. Look in verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John identifies Jesus as, verse 29, the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb of God who is provided by God 
to take sins away. And in his description of Jesus, there is significant application for a world buried under guilt. Jesus is introduced to us the very first time in John's gospel as not a conquering king and a warrior, but as a lamb, a savior. He did not come to be a conqueror. He did not come to be a philosopher. He's not merely a teacher of morality. He's not here to make you a better version of yourself. He came to save sinners. He came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Friends, he came to do for us what money and learning could never obtain. To do that which is essential for true happiness in our lives. To take away our sins. And he is a complete savior. He takes away our sins. Jesus does not come on the scene, according to John, and offer a vague proclamation of pardon, mercy, and forgiveness. He took our sins upon himself on the cross when he died as our substitute and took them away from us. Even now, John is foreshadowing that purpose at the end of the book. He's telling us that the Lamb of God came for a specific mission. The sole purpose of his incarnation was your redemption. That Jesus came to die for you. That Jesus came to bleed for you. That Jesus came to suffer what you deserve to suffer so that you might be saved. And he is a mighty savior. He takes away the sin of the world. He dies for Jews and he dies for Gentiles. He dies for Americans and he dies for the Chinese. He dies for Russians and he dies for Ukrainians. He dies for all kinds of people from all kinds of languages. This past week, if you read the newsletter, you know, and I had time to spend with my friend Brooks Buser, who is a president of a missions organization. But one of the wonderful things about Brooks is that Brooks had the opportunity many years ago to serve as a missionary overseas near Papua New Guinea. And Brooks tells the story of going to this small group of people, about 10,000 people, where he had to learn a language that was not written. And he goes and he just spends the first several years learning a language, holding up things, calling it what it is, asking them what they call it, beginning to write it down, and then slowly writing out a language and then teaching them how to read their own language so that he could eventually teach them the Bible. And about four years into the task, they finally have the opportunity because they've translated written the language, where they can actually start teaching them in the Bible. But rather than starting with the Gospels, Brooks knows that he has to bring their worldview into conflict with the worldview of the Bible. So he goes right in the beginning and he starts to teach them Genesis 1 through 3. And as he's teaching them from Genesis 1 through 3, one of the astonishing things that happens is that the people get emotionally involved in the story. They recognize that when Eve is reaching for the fruit that she shouldn't do this. And then when Adam is taking the fruit from her, that he should not do this. And they're so astonished at the end of chapter 3 that they begin to ask Brooks, when Cain steps on the scene in chapter 4, is he the one? To which they stop and say, what do you mean the one? Was he the one that Genesis 3 said would come? And he said one of the astonishing things is they just kept teaching through the Bible is that they kept asking every person, Cain, no, he's not the one. Seth, no, he's not the one. King David, no, he's not the one. Solomon, no, he's not the one. And then eventually, about a year later, they get to John's gospel. And they're teaching this passage. And he steps on the scene with John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God. And they interrupt him. Is this the one? To which Brooke says, yeah, this is the one. 
This is the one who takes away the sins of the world, who deals with the greatest problem that the Yimbi Yimbi people have and the greatest problem that you have that you share in common with them, your sin. Friends, your greatest problem is not that you haven't been given opportunity. Your greatest problem is not that you failed to achieve in school. Your greatest problem is not that you're married or single, have kids or don't, that your job doesn't pay enough or your boss is too stubborn or your kids just won't listen. Your greatest problem is your sin problem. And John the Apostle introduces us to the one who came to deal with it, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in this beautiful picture, the first way that he paints Jesus is not one who is entitled to worship, though he is. Not one who conquers, though he does. Not one who rules, though he will forever. But one who comes and takes away the sin, the sin that he would take upon himself so that you might know peace, forgiveness, be justified, born again, and raised to everlasting life. Friends, many believers continue to struggle even after they profess to trust in the Lamb of God because they do not realize what the Lamb of God has actually done for them. He did not come to make your life happier. He did not come to make your life whole. He came to save you from hell forever by taking your sins away. And the man of God knew that the Lamb of God was the one who would do it. He bore your shame on the cross. He died for your sins. He suffered the wrath that you deserve so that you could have knowledge of sins forgiven and have hope and have peace and be reconciled to God. Believer, Christian, do you actually enjoy that knowledge? Or do you just live so much of your life burdened by guilt and what God hasn't done for you? John presents Jesus on the stage as the one who comes to take our sins away, that we might be made right with God and non-Christian. You can have that knowledge and hope today. You can have that knowledge and hope today by believing in the message and baptism of John, but by trusting in the lamb that he pointed to, by repenting of your sins, that is, turning away from them and placing all of your faith and the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the astonishing thing in the Bible is that it's incredibly simple to do it. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Friends, you can confess your sins today. You can ask God to forgive you of your sins today, of the things that you did last night that you're ashamed of, and what you said on the way to church this morning that you wouldn't repeat to anybody here of what you've done over the last year that you would not want the pastor to know, of the things that you'll now never tell anybody because you hope that it'll just go away. God, through Jesus Christ, will forgive you of your sins and take them away. And beloved, know this, that it would be impossible now and forever to send yourself outside of the reach of his love if you trust in this lamb. John points us forward. John points us to Jesus. This work that was for the world, people from every nation and all kinds, 
No matter the sin, no matter the background, if they would come to the Lamb of God, their sins could be forgiven. John continues his testimony to Jesus by acknowledging Jesus' superiority because of his preexistence. Look in verse 30. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. That's true for John in two ways. Jesus is born in time after John when he added humanity to himself. And John is first on the scene in ministry and then Jesus. Jesus' prominence, though, is exemplified in his preeminence. As we see not only in the prologue, but in John's proclamation. There is one greater than me. Don't look to me. Look to him. Friends, believers, are you pointing people beyond you to the one that can actually do for them what they cannot do for themselves? So though John and Jesus were cousins, it's clear that John did not understand Jesus' true identity until, verse 31, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. He referred to his own baptism earlier, but John continues by testifying that Jesus is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Verse 32, and John bore witness. I saw the the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. In the Old Testament, we go back and we see all of these references to the Spirit of God falling on people and leaving people, coming on people and going from people. But John was told that something would be different about this one. The Spirit wouldn't come and go, but the Spirit would stay and remain. And the Spirit would stay and remain and it would stay with and in all who trust in Him by faith. I myself did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain... This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Friends, the Lamb of God deals with our sin and moves us to follow him. And it seems that until John baptized Jesus, he had no idea who his cousin actually was. But on that day, what God had told John, and by that sign, he would be able to identify Jesus, the Messiah, by the Spirit remaining on him. And John's baptism would then point forward to the one he was preparing for. So John confesses Jesus to be not just the Lamb of God, but the Son of God. Look at verse 34. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me to Isaiah 42. The very important section of Isaiah's gospel that apparently Isaac covered today in Academy. Isaiah 42. Verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. God's Son came to bring justice to the nations. Justice to people from every tribe and tongue and language. And John's gospel, speaking here uh, from John the Baptist's ministry and message, tells us that this one is God's son who would do for his people the great and climactic act of bringing them out of darkness into light. John had a clear understanding of himself. And John had a clear understanding of the Messiah. His task was to point away from himself and to point to the Messiah. Friends, it is easy for us to be confused as to what God has called us to do. But when we look in John's gospel, John chapter 1, we do not need to be confused. 
Like John the Baptist, God has called us to point people to Jesus and not ourselves. And his humility is a challenge to all of the pride that exists in our lives. A pride that resides in all of our hearts, that exalts ourselves and wants to see ourselves as important and significant. How great is his humility that he would step back and let another take center stage. There is something for us that clamors for attention and for recognition, for people to know that we've done something meaningful. It's a breeding ground for pride and destroys us. But John never forgot that he was simply a voice, a pointer on the way. Christians, have you forgotten that you are simply a witness pointing away from yourself? You are not the starring actor in God's movie. You are just one of the actors in the drama of redemption that all points to Jesus Christ. And notice where John was a great voice for God at in a wasteland, the wilderness. John didn't get the opportunity to be a great and mighty preacher in Jerusalem. And John didn't have the opportunity to be the pastor of First Temple Baptist Church in downtown Center City, Jerusalem. John had to be a preacher pointing to Jesus Christ out in the wilderness, away from all of the hubbub and stardom, and people were flocking to the message. Why? Because he spoke truth and pointed to another. Friends, we have such a backward view of what it means to participate significantly in ministry for Christ. John was not using any gimmicks, and John didn't have any prominence. And yet John was used mightily for the Lord because he pointed away from himself. Believers, let this be an invitation to us to point away from ourselves. If you're a member of our church, just a few simple points of application as we think of this. One of the ways that you point away from yourself is by serving faithfully as a member of this church. You agreed when you came into the membership of this church that you would serve. You agreed that you would serve the members of this church, not only on a regular basis here, but by praying for them. Let me ask you now, are you pointing away from yourself by serving others that they might know that the Lamb of God was slain for them and be encouraged by it? Believers, members here, have you spent more time promoting yourself than promoting the Christ that you follow. And if you want to do an evaluation of that, just scroll through your Twitter feed, check your text messages, look at what you've typed in emails, or ask somebody who's willing to tell you the honest truth. Who are you pointing to most of the time, yourself or to another? And if you're not a Christian, drawing all the attention to yourself because you are desperately longing for somebody to tell you that you matter, let me tell you here today that you matter. You matter a lot to God. He sent his son to die for you. He sent his son that you might have everlasting life. And if you would trust in his son, you can be born again and you can know his father, the father of mercies, the God of all truth, who would reset your path for an eternal bright future because of trusting in Christ. Would you do that today? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these friends who have gathered here around your word with me. And Father, we ask all of us that you would help us today as we turn our attention now to continue to sing, to point away from ourselves to the Lamb of God, that you would help us to believe what we have sung in the service. And Father, that you would help us to believe what we have studied here in this passage. Father, we thank you for the testimony of John the Baptist.
Father, we ask that even now we would learn from that example. And Father, we ask that we would believe, that we would believe in the Lamb of God who was slain for us. And we ask all of this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Would you stand and continue in worship with us?